Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Search for Growth, the show that takes you inside the minds of the world's greatest startup founders and entrepreneurs. Today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Lee Hong Hicken, the CEO of They Said and seasoned startup veteran. Lee Hong was raised in a remote village in China, learned five languages before immigrating to the US, where she then rocketed into a successful career in tech. Starting out as an individual contributor, selling high school parents' education packages, Lee Hong, managed, Lee Hong quickly moved up the ladder and became one of user testing's first female employees, and later became CRO at Gitprime, where she grew revenues 300 to 400% year on year. Gitprime's co-founder, Ben Thompson, refers to her as the most impactful hire they ever made. Since then, Lee Hong has had gone on to experience four successful exits from acquisitions to an IPO and is currently leading, they said, as CEO. Together, we unpack Lee Hong's story from China to the US and the learnings she's had along the way. So, Lee Hong, thank you very much for joining us today. How have you been? Doing well. Thank you for the invitation, Alfie. This is a well of an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for joining. It's, uh, I'm really excited to chat to you. We obviously debriefed uh, before jumping on and very excited to, to talk about your story. So let's start from the beginning. Where did it all start? Let's go back to the younger version of Lee Hong. Where did you grow up and tell us a little bit about your journey? Yeah, totally. I grew up in China, a Liverpool village near Taiwan coastal area. When you mentioned, when you talk about village in China, it's a couple of million people village, right? Not <laughs> a couple hundred people. So it's, but people are really rural. Grew up, we don't have electricity or running water. I remember like candle lights or carrying water, wake up in the morning. It's not turn on the gas and cook your breakfast. You're going to start the fire with the coal at 4 a.m. That's a difficult life. And my family has been traditional entrepreneurs. I would say my dad usually runs business and I always CEO of the business. Like we used to run, have a farm where we have a couple thousand ducks. So I managed to make sure the ducks are alive and happy. We have a grocery store. We have a wine producing fund. Like every two or three years, my dad has some kind of business going. And as the oldest child, I'm the COO to, to make that happen. My sister happened to be very good with numbers and the early days exposed to entrepreneurship. But honestly, I didn't like it then. And as a girl in the village, it's, it's not encouraged that you get education. So I think in my village, we have less than 10 girls able to go into college. The fact that I was able to go into college was like against the family planning, but it happened really luckily to, to make it happen. Really grateful to for along the journey, like a lot of people helped me along the way. Like people will help me pay my tuition. People help me with like last moments, not being able to make commitment to school that they just help. So one of my passion is I want to contribute back, pay back forward. Like one of my passion is education. Not only if you invest in education, not only you help one girl, you help the family, you help many other people that this person can impact. So. Yeah, it's my early career make me who I am. Yeah. And you did, I think you said you moved to the US, was it in 2012? Yeah, 2012. You guys watched the TV kind of 90 Day Fiancé. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I love that show. <laughs> okay. I came over to the 90 Day Fiancé visa. So I met my husband, Chris Hickam, from when we were doing trip in China. And we're long distance dating for a year. And then I, we came here, we were supposed to get married within 90 days. 
So we decided to kind of date, legally married and dating, and then get married. So that's why a year after I get to the U.S., when he proposed to me, I was surprised. Wait a moment. I thought we were married. In his <laughs> mind, so just uh, bring you to U.S. so we can start dating. So anyway, it luckily ended up pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I think it's K1 visa. I've just, me and my wife, so my wife's French and I'm from the UK originally. And uh, we came to the US about three years ago and have gone through the L1 visa and all of that process. It's, it's a wild journey going through the US immigration system. <laughs> for, yeah, I think totally. Anybody it took, took years, but it, it's fun. It made it happen. So when you first came to the US, what was the first thing you started doing when you were able to work? What was the first company that you went into and what did that look like? It's funny The coming, first coming to US, I couldn't work because I was waiting for my visa to, to process. So that was like, Chris was like, hey, you're bored at home. Why don't you come to work with me at user testing? So early days, he was like VP of marketing. User testing was like four people. Like they just surrounded in a small room in the one table. I come over, I don't know what can help. And apparently I've been framed the IT guy. Anyone has IT computer problem or microphone problem, whatever, they come to me. That alone, like, the, fact, the thing is, I'm not an IT guy. I don't know how to fix that. My previous job was like, I'm a tour leader. <laughs> I take people all over the world to travel. But I was like, okay, whatever job flowed to me, I'll just Google it, we'll figure out how to do it. And then I fixed all the problems. So the couple of months while I was waiting for the visa, no one knows I don't know how to use. I mean, I'm not an IT guy because I finished all the work just by doing the research on Google. <laughs> Yeah. So that was the first job that I had, but I always worked several different jobs. I remember weekends, I would be teaching Chinese. Funny enough, all my students were entrepreneurs and CEOs that want to do business with China. So great, I'll do them. So it's like always having two or three gigs at the same time. In fact, right now in the last five years, I for the first time I have weekends, but usually there's no weekend. There's no off. You're always working two or three jobs at the same time. So what was that experience like at user testing? You must have had a, an exposure to rapid, fast growth in the company, starting out as the IT person, and then you've, your career has gone on to become the CRO, growing and building and scaling revenue organizations, and now to founding NACED. So what does that transition look like from IT person to CEO? How did that happen? What was the progression? Yeah, I think it's funny. I didn't, if you asked me 10 years ago, not in a million years, I would think I would go to start my own company and the CEO. It's basically, think about incremental growth. Like every time when someone say, oh, you must be good at this. And then I'll be like, what is that? Some people mention, hey, you must be good at sales. What is sales? Well, I've never done it before. And there was like, just sell something you believe in. So I go into selling high school parents education package because I believe in education. And I will not sell anything I don't personally believe in. And Apparently, every time I try something new, I watch how other people do it, and I do better than that. That's how, show me what example of what is possible, and I do better than that. And then people are like, oh, maybe you can do tech sales. You are a very good business person. You use a testing product to enhance your business in the education business. Why don't you do tech sales? I was like, show me an example. Show me some recordings. Okay, I can do better than that. So going in there and then just first time in tech sales and then ace it. Early days, it was very difficult. Most people told me that if you are not native speaker, if you have an accent, you cannot do technical sales because the sales is on the phone and you need to do that. I remember the first 
every other employee was hired with a formal contract. I'm a, as a contractor paid by hourly because the head of sales didn't believe that I can do it. And he was like, if you can, you need to fix your accent in a month. Well, you don't get this. I was like, okay, I will do this. Still today, I have some kind of accent, but within a month, I was like working so hard to get a tutor, to join accent reduction. And then, and also before the time my clock ran out, I just closed a bunch of deals. Since then, joining user testing, keeping my job by correcting my accent to performing the number one performing salespeople. I was joke like, on a normal month, I my performance 3x, my the second best performer, and then the a bad month maybe I'm a 2x. Like I said, I think because I'm a business person myself, I know the product really well. I put myself in the shoe of the customers. I'm just not just a normal salespeople. I'm like understand the customer. I had being a customer. Maybe that's why I'm successful. But I use the testing people oftentimes like Lee Hong's number is outlier. We don't want to use her to project the model because. It's not accurate. No one can hit her number. I didn't know why I'm successful. People was like, you need to figure out why you're successful so you can repeat this model. But I couldn't. I don't know why. So I said, maybe I go to business school to figure out. So I went to Berkeley for, I, I wanted to go into the best business school. And at that time, Berkeley was number one weekend, like part-time MPA in the United States. I wanted to only go to number one. And I said, look, I got in these high school kids into the Ivy Leagues MBA. I know how to get this, like, I can get myself in. So I did, and then I got myself into the MBA. So daytime, still at the user testing, doing sales, nighttime doing days, weekends, I do tutoring. And then on the other time I'm running, back then there's a lot of jar startup that we're doing. So it's like doing four things at the same time. <laughs> so people, when people are complaining, why did Lee Hong get to CRO in, three, four years, and I took 10 years to get to CRO. That's because I've worked several jobs at the same time. Like, even though it is three, four years, the total working amount is probably the same. <laughs> yeah. So when you went to Berkeley and you did your MBA, did you figure out what made you successful? Not like exactly written down, but I was able to duplicate my success at Gip Prime, and I built a really killer sales team. I wouldn't say at we have a nickname. The sales team is called the Wild Dog Team because I love Wild Dog because they are the, if they're if an individual animal, they're weak. They get attacked by hyenas. But if they are as a group, South African Wild Dogs can hunt lions. So I really believe the teamwork of the sales team. And I built a Wild Dog Team that's really killing it. So I, in that sense, I would say yes. I don't think I can write a book about it, not yet, maybe another two or three years to settle down, but I can do this again. Do you think there's an element of being an immigrant coming from the background that you had, where you had to work hard to get where you are? Did you see that when you came to the US that your work ethic was just unmatched by other people in your surroundings? Yeah, I was surprised because originally I thought everyone worked hard as, as I do. That I would say one of my biggest disadvantage or like weakness is maybe I don't have as much of empathy to other people because they will be complaining like, oh, I have 12 credits. I can't do this. I'm not getting B. I was like, I have three jobs and I have 12 credits and I'm getting A's. Like, 
so I don't understand what's the problem. But now I understand. I think life is equal. If you if life gives you a lot of pain and suffering when you are a childhood, then nothing coming afterwards is difficult. Everything is gravy, right? I don't need to worry about being hungry anymore. That was just like, hey, nothing is better than before. Like the, people oftentimes describe me as a bold or fearless because I've gone through the worst. <laughs> nothing in life will scare me anymore. I've seen that, but I think U.S. I think everyone's people know about their pain more than this. Like I'm sure other people might not have the work ethic, whatever, it's not because of that. It's like something in their environment or something in their growing really hurting them that I'm not in their shoes. I don't think I'm in a position to judge them. I think people growing up in U.S., a lot of them like don't have examples of success, don't have the ways to get to the top or don't have a mentor to guide them through this. I've seen a lot of that. One of my passion is I want to coach a lot of people. Like I've seen a lot of talented people, but they don't have ways or connection to get into tech sales, which is really good industry for people, like a lot of good benefit and money, but people from the underprivileged world can't get to that. So like when I'm looking at hiring people that I'm willing to train these people, I don't care what your work experience are. I care about who you are today and where you are going to be. And I want to inspire these people to do their best and become, like everyone should become better than me. Like any joke, anyone that I hire are better than me because I can see their potential. And then I hope that my experience can inspire them to do better things to, hey, people tell Lee Hong that if you're an immigrant, your accent is not good, you cannot do sales. Wrong. I'm an example of that. People say tech sales is a white man's club. Women or let alone Asian women. In fact, in the United States, I haven't seen any other Asian women being CRO. At least not the first generation. I'm telling them, no, you're wrong. It's possible. I want to inspire people like me being here is an example of anything is possible. Don't let other people tell you that you cannot do this, cannot do it. You can be whatever you want. The ceiling is only as high as you want it to be. It sounds like there's a there was a few things that I'm picking up from your story. You know, one, when you have nothing to lose, then there's nothing is a risk. There's only the upside is it's an asymmetric, <clears throat> it's an asymmetric bet to bet on yourself. Right. But also learning five languages, coming on to do a job that you've never done before, learning everything from, okay, I don't know how to fix IT stuff. I'm going to learn this. Okay, I don't know how to do tech sales. I'm going to learn this. It sounds like every stage of your career, you've taken this beginner's mindset, which is a, a critical part of the growth mindset, your growth versus fixed mindset. So everything is possible if you can, A, believe in yourself that you can do it, B, have this beginner's mindset where you are constantly learning. And it seems that you're doing this and constantly evolving. I think a lot of people tend to plateau because they get to this point where they actually try to protect everything that they've already learned and rest on the laurels in a way to yeah. kind of stay feeling in the comfort zone. Or I've worked hard to learn this and I want to stay in this comfort zone rather. It sounds like you've gone through multiple rebirths in a way where you've gone from one thing you were doing or one place you were living, one particular job or career, and then completely starting again and learning something new and not having the fear to go and do that, which clearly is working in your favor. That's right. In fact, I am motivated. I'm driven by learning new things. So that if I'm going to 
a job that I've already done it or been there and successful, it just bore the heck out of me. I have to be constantly learning things that I don't know. Like I said, I'll be at the beginning of our conversation. Every night I had to listen to some kind of audiobook, some kind of things in order to fall asleep. Like this mind doesn't know how to turn off. It had to be like constant learning. Yeah. So it's that's is a blessing. And the other times we'll just chill out. Stop <laughs> learning for a second. Yes. So one thing that I found when I went from an individual contributor to then managing a sales team for the first time, and I think there's probably quite a few people that make this mistake, but the mistake I definitely made was, hey, I've proven that this is the way I can be successful in this role and hit or surpass quota and bring in revenue. And this is the techniques and strategies that I've learned. So all I need to do is hire someone and teach them and they'll be successful. They have the knowledge. There's no reason why they shouldn't be successful. And I learned very quickly that doesn't work. Yeah, it <laughs> and, doesn't work. Um, yeah. You've got to help other people go on their own journey of discovery. And actually your role as a manager to support them is to remove barriers from in front of them and help them guide them into the right direction, giving them their belief in themselves, but also the right infrastructure supporting them to, to do that. Mm-hmm. What in your journey from being successful yourself to then growing and scaling a revenue organization and hiring other people, what were the lessons that you took away from that? What makes a high performing revenue team? Yeah, that's a great question. It's almost like you're poking my secrets, huh? For me, it's very important that I'm designing my revenue organization with the customer in mind. So it depends on who the customer is, you're going to build your team slightly different. So back then in Yip Prime, our target audience is VP of engineering. So we know that. What does Git Prime do? So it's into integer. Uh, Git Prime is think about is like analytic for for engineers. Like it, it aggregates all the data source to figure out like you give engineering leaders visibility like what is being written what okay. between engineering teams. So it's like a management tool for engineering leaders to see what their team's building and coach them based on what was written. So it's like the people manager of the engineering team is our target audience. And that position is usually a VP of engineering, not a CTO. So I find that later on, like CTO usually is technical leader of the engineering team and VP of engineering is the people leader of the engineering team. So we're selling to people leader of engineering team. And what I quickly found out is that they hate talking to salespeople. They just, so you can't hire just a normal salespeople and you're just gonna fail terribly. So I basically wanted to understand what this group of people think and try to match my team to that target. I did a lot of research, like what kind of, so we go from, okay, I don't know if you heard about a wonder lick test. It's almost like a cognitive ability test. Like, IQ tests, whatever. Right. So I want to make sure that people I hire is at the same level as the target audience. I know that on average, a, a normal engineering engineer in US, the, the Wonderlick score is 33. Okay. So when I'm hiring the salespeople, one, I don't hire traditional salespeople. Like I said, if you don't have sales background, no problem. I can train you as long as you are willing to learn and you write people. So I screen out, I only hire people that has close to this 33 number. Anything over is not good as well. They will be too bored. They're not suitable for a sales position. So we find these people and we train them, understand like 
what is the pain point of our customer, our target customers? I actually design, I end up designing games to relive the pain of this target audience. Like you don't deserve to serve them or sell to this target audience if you haven't sit in their shoes, if you haven't suffered their pain. So we wanna create the empathy we have for this target audience we created, understand why our solution is a blessing. So like I said, for me, I would not sell anything to a target group if I don't truly believe it's right. So I'm trying to replicate this. Well, one, I hire people matching to the target audience. Two, that then understand and live and suffer the pain of the target audience. Then tell them, hey, here's the pill that can stop your pain. So I think that is fundamental like in terms of hiring, what kind of people we want. Secondly, you mentioned like supporting these people to be successful. I believe in team, team, uh, a team movement. Like traditional sales teams usually, I don't know where you'll be. Usually there's a dog eating dog. There's like Preston Club. I got to beat my team to get to the top. I really hate that. Why can't we just win together as a team? and have fun with it. In terms of incentivization or the commission structure, I wanna make sure that people have the same goal. If as a team, we hit this goal together, everyone wins. It's not like just the top few people. And it really reflects on your commission structure. And also in the commission structure, we hit it really hard, like making it in a way that my commission structure always have a loophole. And I let people know my loophole because rules have to be broken. I'm, I welcome these bold salespeople who are just so aggressive at hitting it and want them at least bold salespeople to be rowing in the dough. And the dough performers will probably like, oh, I don't fit in, I'll leave myself. That's how you make a team like orientated toward the same goal. Like almost like a, a pack of wild dogs. Our goal, the lion can have a wing if we hit the goal. Everyone have a big feast when we win. So it's win together, win as a team, learn together as a team, build a team that's really hungry to learn, really hungry to win as a team. So in terms of so incentive, the right incentives clearly are so important. You want to f figure out why something happens, look at the incentives. That's easier said than done, however. <laughs> How do you incentivize people to work as a team as well as you know, pull their own weight. So I'd love to know, there's two things you said there. So one, how do you create that team incentive? Is it a mix between a team target, 50% of your variable is based on team achievement and 50% is based on the individual? I'd love to know that. And secondly, you mentioned this loophole. Can you give me an example of what a loophole is and how that materializes? So I'd love to hear those two. Yeah, totally. I wouldn't give like specific team incentive to everyone because every different company is different. I don't want to mislead you to think it's one one formula lose all. But I'm actually expert of A-B testing. One thing I say, once you are user testing, you're aware of that. I understand user testing really well. I am an expert in that. I'm selling that for years. So I did a lot of A-B testing in different, in a control environment to see which commission drive which behavior and quickly adjust it. Saying I do it with A-B testing on pricing, like what kind of pricing drive which kind of behavior, and you can do this. In fact, I actually, my CEO, Git Prime, actually shared my pricing model and my commission model with a lot of YC funders. Hey, if you want a commission model, here's one. But without like detailed understanding of what you want to achieve, 
applying a formula is pretty dangerous. Happy to help. Like I, I'm pretty active in the startup world when people like trying to figure out their first pricing or first commission structure. Even in Berkeley, people are like, I want to figure out a startup sales team commission structure. Ah, talk to Lee Hong. Okay. Happy so to without help. getting into like specific examples then, but more what would be like a framework for thinking about it? Typically, when you look at a, a revenue compensation model, there is some mixture of a fixed and a variable compensation. Very often that might be 50-50, 50% fixed, 50% variable. And in yes. that variable, there is a mix between team goals and individual goals. How would you just think, what kind of frameworks would you look at? If you've got five different organizations with different products, different types of sales processes, what are the things that you're looking for to identify? Which levers would you play with? Yeah, totally. Like you said, we probably usually toward like 50-50 because we want to have people who are driving for the upsell. And then usually the commission structure is tied to the individual performance. And uh, like the loophole I mentioned, <clears throat> I want to have an acceleration, mm. meaning like if you hit this goal, everything you book afterwards is doubled. Everything you close is doubled, right? So there is a huge incentive to pass the minimum threshold, pass the next level. Like each tier you hit, you're getting incentivized a lot more. And the loophole is this, that at some point, usually around 3x, that they hit their goal 3x in a row, we're going to be broke. <laughs> we're going to pay these people like so much money that we have to promote them to the next row. Which is why in which I encourage like a lot of millennials, people like they want to be promoted every six months, uh, every year, or maybe even every three months. Great. I welcome that. Like I'm the best boss for the millennials who want to move forward. And I set a standard, if you broke that rule, which make us not affordable, I'll promote you. And people love to be promoted to the position. Now, I do realize that most people get promoted to a position where they no longer fit. And then they stay there. So usually we'll work with this individual to figure out, okay, what is the best fit for you? How can we drive you to more growth? Almost like a more career coaching and career ladder growth plan for each individual in your team. Very interesting. So I want to switch up gears a little bit and talk about some of the exits. So you've, I think if I'm not mistaken, you've experienced or been in four different companies that have had some sort of exit, whether it was an acquisition or then gone on to, to IPO. What was the environment like in those companies? Would you say that these were successful exits? What were the lessons that you learned? Did you actually go through with the acquiring companies? I'd love to just to get inside the minds of someone who's been in those experiences. Myself, I've never been part of a company that's been acquired. My wife has been multiple times. And so I find it very interesting to see the kind of differences, but I'd love to hear that story from you. Yeah, totally. It's some of the acquisition is a little bit, you probably heard about the something called a golden handcuff. Have, I seen the, have you seen the Silicon Valley a TV show where when the company got acquired, all the engineers moved to the rooftop of Google to hang out there and do nothing. That's what I thought, like what would happen with a lot of the acquisitions. If you're a key member of the executive team, sometimes they have a retainer to keep you in the team and pushing it. I would say it depends the size of your company to the acquired company. The smaller you are, the less influence you are. And typically, I don't know other people. To me, I'm basically golden handcuffed. Try to provide as much value to the acquirer as possible and then go start a startup again. So to, to clarify for the audience, when you're talking about the golden handcuff, it's the fact that when your company is acquired, there are certain terms and conditions as part of that acquisition for certain key members, whether that be the founding team or certain executives 
to stay on within the company to either provide a smooth transition to integrate the technology into the acquiring company or there might be things like non-competes and things like this and often this is a period of time of which for the people who've just sold their company not only are they kind of stuck in that they've now gone from being a founder an entrepreneur to an employee which can suck that's one and secondly a lot of the actual equity or the revenue that they're going to get from the sale is actually tied to them having certain goals or metrics to obtain whilst they're in there so it creates in this position where you feel like you can't really do that much you don't have much autonomy or agency and you're stuck there waiting to get out i think it depends on that i think i've seen acquire happen really well have you you probably used Venmo before, right? Venmo and PayPal. So I think Venmo was acquired by uh, PayPal and there one of their CTO, the co-founder becomes like CEO for PayPal. So you could have a very important position if you handle well. Just personally me, I'm more like a startup CEO rather than a manager, big team, like a corporate. I think it's very important to understand who you are as a leader. So I'm more like a hunt well dog like the more chaotic the better the more stressful the better it's depending on who you are at this age time of my age i know what my strength is and what my weaknesses is i just don't do well in a relaxed environment (laughs) (laughs) somehow i can sense that you're clearly a driven person so what tips do you have for those entrepreneurs who are going through that then is there a period in the negotiation of being acquired where you need to be very cognizant of the terms and the conditions of what that acquisition looks like. What are the things that some people should look out for? What things can be negotiated away? If you want to be able to have the freedom to then go on and start a new enterprise, it sounds like how much time did in each of these acquisitions, how much time did you actually stay in the acquiring company for before being able to leave? It's usually a typical two year golden handcuff. It's right. a standard in the industry and you can leave early depending on you. I've seen other coworkers leave early. I think in terms of advice on like these negotiation terms, you can prioritize like terms and conditions versus pricing. I think our co-founder Prime were really classy. They sacrificed the price for us to each have a very good term. Awesome. Okay. And so going through this experience, obviously at Git Prime, you went, you led the team as the chief revenue officer. Can you talk to me a little bit about the journey with Nufsed? and how that evolved into they said firstly maybe if you could explain what those companies both did and how this transition and had evolved because i think this is a very interesting story yeah totally full disclosure enough said ceo chris Kung is my husband he created enough said in the vision of one inbox rules are so think about gmail slack some people have five gmails 10 slack like i'm one of those people imagine <laughs> all that communication <laughs> it's in in unaffordable like so much noise coming in so combine that into one centralized communication app layer on top of customer insight to prioritize the work so for example if my boss message come to me either it's test message on the slack on email that person's always come on top right because i'm an expert in go-to-market like pricing or getting the customer into that chris my husband asked me like hey Li Hong, you are make all the other CEOs so rich. Can you make me rich too? To making my company successful? If I hire any other salespeople, if the product doesn't sell, well, I don't know if it's a salespeople's problem, or is it the product problem, is the market problem. But if you come on board, if you can sell, then it's probably the product's problem. So I come on board and I interviewed five to six hundred customers in a period of what we found is really interesting. The customer is saying, okay, this one inbox 
user vision is great, but I don't have the reliable customer insight to make the prioritization come true. I said, what do you mean you don't have customer insight? Don't you have a lot of data from your Salesforce, from your health score, from whatever, uh, from your NPS? And I come to realize, holy shit, how much a desert people have in terms of like a reliable data source to predict who in your customer needed help, who is ready to be upsold. If you outfit, there's a lot of AI tools today. There's a lot of CSP, Gainsight, Trendsio, whatever data today. What I found is these data are, are, these tools are data aggregators. So they usually aggregate data from different sources and then they lay on AI to figure out the best option. But the problem is if your data source is wrong to start with, your result is gonna come up inaccurate. So I realized, oh, this, so there's a gap that we need to fill. So I say, Okay, customer, how about this? We'll build this up a feature. We'll, build, we'll give you some data source. Then would you buy this whole package? They were like, no, I want to buy this thing, that sub feature. Can you build that one first? And I actually didn't believe them, right? Maybe these customers are doing lip services. They're not going to build something, invest so much of company's time just because you like it. I said, hey, if you like it, if you want to pay for it, we'll build it. I thought no one would take that offer. Sure enough, some people, yes. I want it. Here's some money, build it. So I call our head of product like, holy shit, they're closing deals with a product we don't have. What are we gonna do about it? By the way, the, so then we were like, okay, getting customer insight, we can do using survey, like a monkey can send survey. How difficult is that? Just gonna jack together some survey monkey, survey sparrow, hotspot have a survey tool, Salesforce has a survey tool. We can jack together and build an engine for the sales teams. The result was terrible. Now I realize why these customers say, hey, get, take my money and build it. It actually requires a customized journey, something specific for it, rather than like jack together an existing tool for it. So we actually serve our MVP, we launched, quickly got 35 customers, even on a pre-product thing, and they're getting great results. And then we realized, holy shit, this, is, this could be large. And in a couple of months ago, private, a product management tool company, really large one in Silicon Valley, I can't disclose who they are, wanted to buy the NAFSET one inbox rules or product. So they got acquired, but this customer inside engine piece, which is they said today, has more traction and more interest. So we're not gonna let it die. So I was like, okay, I've done my market research, the customer wanted, I've tested with smaller customers. The data work is legitimate. So I wanted to invest in this and I wanted to build a billion dollar company because you know, what's my alternative? My next alternative is go work for another C startup funder and then get a small thing out of it. And maybe they will sell it early, right? So I want to build a billion dollar company and I know it takes 10 years, but with what they said, we already skip two years of diaper fit. Think about this. I've already got all the product market fit kinks work out. I've got already got a product that's working. I've got revenue, I've got customer, I've got a team that worked together in four different startups before. We worked well together. So it's almost like a big gift landed on my lap. It's like when the God says, hey, take this gift, I'm gonna say yes. I'm gonna make this happen and build a billion dollar company in eight years. So that's the story of they said. 
I have so many questions. So one of the questions, so when the acquiring company who you can't disclose looked at Nafsed, were they happy? They were just happy to say, okay, this is another un business unit. We're not acquiring the company for this. You can just siphon this off and do your own thing. Like, how did you negotiate that as part of the acquisition deal? I can have credit on that. Chris Nikon is the creative master behind that and then basically show off the main product IP to them. And then this smaller product, we just like recently start working, spun off to a, another IP. So think about Nafset as the mother company. Yeah. Uh, one to you, one and the other to the Layset. So we both acquire part of the Nafset. I love this. There's so many, there's multiple ways, there's many paths to heaven, as they say, there's multiple ways to create an enduring company, but some ways are perhaps more effective or efficient, or perhaps give you a better inkling of long-term success. And some people start off with theorizing over an idea, what could be an idea? And then they go out and try and validate if that's actually a problem. And they do it the other way around. You started first with, we'll get to the insight in a moment, but you started off with this insight to say, okay, here's this problem. Let's actually speak to the customers first and then get them to pay for something and validate that there is enough of a pain that people win to pay before you even do one line of code. Um, yes. And it goes back to that kind of the MVP approach. But I think I still feel like the way you did this incubated within inside the company, like you said, missing, skipping two years of the diaper phase. I love that, that, that analogy It is really, is quite interesting. A lot of companies, I feel like they stumble upon the right business model. If you look at how Segment was created, they created, first it was a tool for university professors to help interact with students. That didn't work because the students were just on their laptops. Then they had this line of code that they were trying to test that product by putting it into different data sources and said, oh, let's just put this on GitHub. And then it got downloaded a ton and they're like, okay, that's a business. And so they weren't searching for it. They stumbled across it. Where For you, where was the insight in originally from enough said to, to they said to say, okay, there is this problem for the insights of customers. Did this come from the customers? Was there something that you stumbled upon or was it more of a kind of like a proactive thought process? I think it's, it's a both. It was shocking for me to find out the traditionally, we are in the business of figuring out why customers are staying with us and why they are leaving us. And traditionally, companies use a metric, which is product usage. There's a belief that if they use it, they must find that's valuable, right? I think in the sense that it does have value Product users tell you what the customer is doing, but it doesn't tell you the why behind it. Surprisingly, I found out most people feel the why using a metric called NPS, mm. Net Promoter Score, which is the question they ask. How likely are you going to recommend XYZ company to my friends and families? Right? And that is not a good metric. If they give you a high rating, do you know why? Do you, if they give you a low rating, maybe they're just pissed that day. It's not actionable. My husband joke about this. It's almost like... I, Alfie, almost like your wife asking you the MPS question. How likely would you recommend me to your boyfriend, right? For, it's not a good metric to measure the relationship, right? And this was created, metric was created by some McKinsey people like 10 years ago for B2B business and is adopted into B2B. So I can't, I'm just like stunned about, oh my God, it's 2023 and people are still using this MPS to figure out this and they were complaining about, oh, our response rate is low. Of course, the response rate is low. You're asking a stupid, selfish question. The industry average rate for MPS is 1% to 4%. It is no wonder. Like, if you look at today's business, if you go to Amazon to shop for a business, for something, this website is tailored for you as individual, as a buyer, right? 
So same thing, why isn't the customer journey question not designed for you as an individual? It's like bizarre. So the way they said do is we actually taking our experience from user testing. We are expert in user journey. So we connect with your Salesforce and understand, okay, you are a buyer, you are a user, you are a technical user. So because who you are as a person and your role is different, we'll ask different questions to you. And we also ask different questions at different stage of your engagement. Like maybe you just bought the product. We want to know, did the sales team oversold you? If you are about to renew, we want to know, are you going to be the main contact person that's going to be in charge of the relationship? Like we typically have the champion leaving the company, problem, mm. right? Your main champion is gone and this. So there isn't any way to do this customized, tailored experience for our customer. Again, I wanted to make sure every business we built is with a mind of customering head. What does a customer feel like? This makes a lot of yeah. logical sense to me. I guess my question, just to rephrase the question, is so the, from your experience, it's clear from user testing and to hear the problem and the kind of solution aspect, it makes like log complete logical sense. I guess the question is more from when you were in Nafsed and you had this, you started to go off and interview 500 people. Was it a case of, hey, we want to test out like a new business unit. We've got this idea. Let's try and validate this with 500 people. Or yeah. was there an experience that you had enough said to say, oh, we're solving this problem of the one inbox to rule it all. But there was this, we internally, we're trying to understand what our customers want. And we realize we don't actually understand this ourselves. Do other customers have this? Like, where did that kind of naturally come from? Or was it literally just, we've got this idea, but we're in this fortunate position where we've got customers that we can speak to and a good kind of base to start from? Yeah, we usually start with idea and hypothesis. And then our design team will build some kind of a Figma product that doesn't exist. But I, we ask them, like, we do a demo of this potential product that we think can solve that problem and get feedback. And they will usually say, yeah, that's good, that's not good, whatever. And then we gather the feedback, go back to design team, change the product a little bit, but no code is in hand. And go back to pitch again. Oh, another problem. So we did 20 rounds of back and forth to decide, okay, what exactly what customer wants. Mm. And when people say, yeah, that's exactly what we want. When can we get it? I'm willing to pay for this. Actually, some already paid for it. So then, okay, engineering team, build it. And usually we incremented, like, first build out an engine. Like, sure, we need to be able to ask these questions. But maybe the result, right, we don't have a dashboard. In a spreadsheet, we don't have whatever. Like, we build a minimum product along the way, see, like, what customer wants. I think what the first aha moment hit me was like the fucking response rate was through the roof. I just, I was so shocked about the response rate. Remember early on, I said 1% to 4%. We have the like, early customers on B2B technical users, like 30% response rate per post. Or people using per your product as opposed to the potential customers that you're reaching out to. You're talking about customers that are using your product are getting 30% response rate from using the actual product. Yeah, said, the, yeah, their customer. They were like, I've never heard back from this customer. Wow. They're willing to answer the laser post. Why? I was like, holy shit, this thing works. Why is it working? Like, it's almost saying as before, like, why did Lee Hong work? Like, I, we don't mm. know. We we're like, the thing work. What is like, our team keep getting together. Like, why did it work? Maybe it won't work. Maybe if people feel like it's novel, maybe it doesn't work. And then a year later, it still work. We have some hypothesis why this works, but that was like aha moment. It works. It solved a big problem. During the hike of, I don't know if you noticed, in 
2022, Q3 and Q4, almost half of my target audience were laid off, like head of CS, head of ANs, so that with a financial bubble or a tech bubble coming in 2022, our retention rate is through the roof. I almost, I have like almost zero retention and my close rate is through the roof. Like my biggest problem is getting people to try this because it's something new. It's mm. almost like, it's like, but if they try it, my close rate at the first try is 90%. It's like, if you try it, you will buy. And if you buy, you will stay. It's like, there's a, holy shit, there's a whole business out of it. And we just need to like, it has raised their hand saying, we have a need on this. It's about us as entrepreneurs to execute it and figure out how we can deliver more value in an economy way. So we can both win on this. I think I mentioned to you offline when we were preparing for the podcast that I launched a go-to-market advisory company in November. And uh, I'm actually, this is recent news, not necessarily public. I guess it will be now the time that the podcast comes out. But I'm actually leaving Spendesk to go and do this full-time. And what's really interesting is I get to see lots of different founders going through this kind of early go-to-market process. I'm digging into the questions because I, I just love the approach that you've taken. One of the things that is very common a lot across all of the people that I'm working with is this question of, okay, we need to validate a lot of hypotheses. The customer development framework from Steve Blank in the book, The Four Steps to the Epiphany is like a great framework if anyone's listening. And to go through and validate this hypothesis, you need to speak to customers. Now you said you spoke to 500 potential customers. It's a huge amount and that's amazing. I think one of the struggles that a lot of people have is especially becoming from a, like a technical background. So they don't really know how to reach out to customers to actually get those conversations. When we, in Spendesk, where when we moved from the U Europe to the US, we first started approaching it with, okay, we know what our product market fit is, our messaging is, we're just gonna try and sell the product in the US and see what happens. That didn't work because our messaging wasn't right. We weren't speaking to the right people. The market was different. So we changed the approach and switched to this, hey, I'm looking to interview industry experts to get feedback because we're building a product we haven't yet launched. It's not a sales pitch. This is like informational interviews. And that's how we got all our initial meetings. So we our top of funnel filled up. We got lower conversion rates because there's a lot of people not in the buying process. Right. But it did give us the feedback loop that we needed to learn who was the right person, what was the right messaging so that we could then launch a campaign. So I guess my question for you is in that process of getting those 500 interviews, how did you actually go from not having people to speak to having a calendar full of 500 people to get those learnings? Because I think that is quite a big hurdle for non-salesy people and founders to go out and validate these things early on. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's basically a sales process. You got to feel the top of funnel. The messaging is just instead of trying to sell them something, but trying to ask them for product feedback. I think a couple of things work toward my favor is that enough said, even though the process of figuring out our product market fit and what we want, we know the revenue team sales and success is our target audience. So we actually publish a lot of content as a company. Like you probably know we have three magazines. We have podcasts, we have newsletters to the target audience. And the purpose is that we do, we're not selling, we're not talking anything about Nafset or Dayset, nothing. It's more about providing and contributing to the community, providing thought leadership, providing what we learned in the market. Like when we talk to customers, we learn something, we want to share with the community to build a community sense. And over time, we have built out a really solid brand where they consider Nafset and Dayset as the industry thought leader for the cutting edge, what's the future of our industry figure. And when we reach out to people on LinkedIn, co-outreach, they saw us, they saw our name, and they were very, and usually I make sure like every outreach 
we reach out to customers must provide value. So usually we provide it, we'll see if this person care about this problem, that problem. We push them rather than content to solve their problem. And then we, we help them when we ask, make the ask, can you give us product feedback? It almost feel like they want to return the favor because they have already received so much value from you that they want to return the favor. And then there's a lot of people in the industry who are needing help on career guidance or be- switching between jobs. Chris and I actually help a lot of these people land the next gig or find the next fit. So it's a give and get thing. Don't think you can ask someone's time and think not giving back. Think about what you want to give back to the community and to the people you ask to give time. You have to think about give first before you can ask for the get. It's a great framework. There's a, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. His name's Josh Braun. He's, he was the head of sales at Basecamp and he now does sales training and coaching and does some really great content on LinkedIn. He has this concept of withdrawals and deposits and uh, most people are just taking withdrawals, but you can't do that unless you've got money in the bank, otherwise you go overdrawn. So you need to bake deposits and this is what you're saying, be given the value and then you can create the relationship. I think going back to the same experience we had with Spendesk, one of the things we did was this CFO Connect community for finance people. And, you know, we actually just had a lot of conversations by inviting people to this, you know, connecting them with other people and again, permitting it. But it's really interesting because I think a lot of founders in the early days, they don't think about creating a community, creating a podcast or doing these sorts of things because they feel like marketing activities, but they don't necessarily see it as this is actually helping you open up your exposure to opportunity and conversation and learnings just in a very indirect way. And I've seen this strategy, um, I won't mention the person just because I don't they, in terms of their company and how much is public or not, but they launched a podcast in the customer success space and they were doing this for 12 to 18 months whilst they were learning in the background, like building stuff. But the whole point of it was to get in front of their potential buyers, learn and understand. And then from that, they had so much, many of their first customers, their investors were all like guests on the podcast, things like this. And it just gives you that credibility. So I feel like this is definitely like an underrated way to just get access to the right people, which is super interesting. I have one other question. I'm just looking at the time because I know we're coming up to the hour. Do you have a hard sure. stop on the hour? No, I don't have a hard yeah, okay. stop. Yeah. Okay. So one of the other things you've clearly shown excellence in terms of execution from a revenue perspective. And as you said, from your husband's statement, if we can't do it with you in at the, the helm of the revenue organization, we've got a product problem. And that's really great. I think <clears throat> for a lot of people, they don't know if it's a product market fit problem or it's a go-to-market problem and an execution problem. What are some of the ways that you help identify whether the problem is I'm just not doing this whole sales process, this learning, discovery, customer development properly? versus that the, pro- the product just sucks and we need to change it. Do you identify that? That's a great question. We have been thinking about this internally deeply. In fact, we actually wrote out a product for it. We come up with a t- term called CPV, which is customer perceived value. It's basically like whether or not you are successful should be measured by your customers, not by your internal team. Don't be elegant. Like your customer knows how good you are. And that CPV is made of four questions. One, are we solving an important, critical problem for you? It's a problem. Number two, how good is our product in solving your problem? Number three is how good is the pricing we deliver compared to the value you receive? And lastly is how helpful is the people? And these are weighted differently based on your industry. But the idea is 
like you want to know like if things are not working well is it because you're not solving an important problem i think that part is the hardest if you're not solving a great problem no matter how good your product is how good your pricing is how good your people is you're going to be dead it's just not going to happen and then secondly like second hardest thing is a problem your product sucks have bugs or don't don't have a good ui or missing features that is fixable but costly like it costs money to fix that pricing and people are easier to fix internally so it's a it's actually something what we're experimenting here in the company sometimes when i see a company that uses LASIK product and come back with amazing CPV score. I was like, my first reaction is, can I buy stock of this company? <laughs> I have, a, I have inter, insider news. Can I invest in this company? And then if I see somebody has like really bad CPVs, especially is not fixable, as can I short this company? So again, we need more data. And this is something that I'm, I'm testing out more to see, is this more accurate projecting? So far, at least in the B2B SaaS space, I think this is very accurate for my knowledge. In other space, I can't tell yet. Yeah, that's super interesting. I wrote an article in like a few years ago about the, they called it the PSP framework, positioning, segmentation and product. And this was my way of trying to, I guess it's similar in its objective to maybe the CPV framework you just mentioned, but it was, okay, we're not getting the conversion rates in the funnel if something doesn't feel right. Is it the positioning? i.e. how we're selling it. And this is something you can change on every cold call or every email. And so that's a very quick kind of you know, feedback loop. Can we sell it in a different way? But sometimes you don't want to change too much how you sell it because you've got this core product that you're trying to execute. Then there's right. segmentation. So are you selling it to the right person? The value that you provide to one person may be completely different to the value to someone else. And it goes back to your point about the critical, what was the title of the, the importance? Yeah. yeah, it was like, what's the critical nature of this? How important is it? What's the impact that this the is problem. having? Yeah, how critical is the problem we're solving for you? Yeah. That, there you go. And so for some industries and segments, the impact of that problem, that pain is going to be far more. And then lastly, if you think you've got the right segment and you've got the right positioning, but it's still not working, then maybe it's like the product. But like you said, that product requires engineers and coding and resourcing. And it's a very expensive thing to pivot. So you want to go through these layers of pivoting to figure out actually, is it one of these before you put money into code? Yeah, totally. Amazing. Okay. Before I'm going to go on to the rapid fire questions, but I know there's, we've prepared some notes to go through. Is there anything that you would like to have discussed today that we haven't yet spoken about that we could jump into before the quick fires? Otherwise I can go straight into the quick fire. Let's go for it. All right. So quick fire round. What is your favorite non-business book? It will be Three Bodies Problem. I'm a big sci-fi fan. And one of my dreams is to have one of my kids become the president of Mars. How do you spell the title? Three Body Problem. I think they're, the, they, I think they're the first Chinese sci-fi book that is, I think, winning some kind of award. Hugo Award. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just check 36,000 ratings on Amazon. So it's clearly a popular book. <laughs> it is amazing. I've listened to, if I'm running out of books to read at night, listening to that, it's, I read that again. <laughs> okay. Okay. So what's your favorite business book that you would recommend the most? Yeah. My favorite one is actually my Bible of go to market is crossing the chasm. It's an old book in the six, pretty old, but the, I really believe in the idea of selling to a new group of customers, almost like finding the visionaries, proving out it's my Bible of like how to go to market. I've been implementing in every other startup that I work in. I have every one of my hire read that book. So love it. 
I love this one. I have to take a, I have a question follow up on that. I'll take it offline with you, but it's around, <laughs> this is great when you're starting something for, from scratch to get those visionaries. But if you're coming in as into a market with incumbents already, and you're just trying to capture a piece, that's, I find it very difficult to use that framework. I'd love to pick your mind on that. Okay. And then the last question, is there a truth that is commonly held in your industry that you disagree with? The f I think the funny thing is people in, in the industry really overvalue innovation. Like today's world, you see all the stuff with this AI, that AI, this AI, it's just, if you can solve this problem simply with some kind of common sense, why do you use like heavy AI to solve this? Like I'm taking a joke. If you can cut this tofu with chopstick, why do you use a gun to suit it? It's just so costly. <laughs> that is going to be like the best analogy I think I've ever heard on this podcast. <laughs> Can I steal this? I'm going to have to steal this one. This has been amazing. <laughs> Dude, boy, I, I have, I used to have this kind of thing, like every car. <laughs> <laughs> okay there yeah, that's amazing it's i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more okay and then finally this is your opportunity is there any uh, plugs that you'd like to put in here and also where can people find you and what should people be looking for and let, this is your time to to plug anything yeah totally you can you guys can find me i'm most active on linkedin and luckily there's only one lee hong hicken on linkedin so you don't need to go through a list to find me and if you are a sales leader cro or vp of ans who are looking to solve the the retention problem and grow your revenue find they said the io we are we're happy to work with you use our expertise to work with you together Awesome. We'll put all the links in the show notes so people can find you and your company easily. Listen, Lee Hong, thank you so much today. It's been absolutely amazing. I've learned a ton and we're going to have to get you back on to go through more because there's so many questions that I would love to ask you and we unfortunately don't have the time to. Thank you very much. Awesome. Take care.